Friends, we're going to be continuing today with our Ancestry.Bible sermon series where we look at our forefathers and foremothers of our faith as found in the book of Genesis. This week we're going to be studying Jacob and his narrative of when he sees an amazing dream that changes his life forever. Uh, Just to note that I'm going to be expanding our reading by a couple verses. Uh, Instead of ending at verse 19a, I'm going to go to 22. Hear now God's living word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it, He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give you one-tenth. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. Amen. Let us pray together. Loving and gracious God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that all would be pleasing and acceptable in thy presence, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. None of us are perfect people. It may be a word of comfort then that as we look at scripture and read about its many people that are represented there, that none of them are perfect either. In fact, they're very human characters, flaws and all, but God still works powerfully through their lives, imperfections and all. Jacob is one of these very human characters, more so than perhaps other characters in the Bible even. Well, to understand more about Jacob, we have to look back briefly at his backstory, that one chapter that leads up right to Genesis 28, where our reading occurred today. 
story goes, as, Genesis, as Jacob's story begins, that he's a crafty sort, always looking out for number one. He has a brother, Esau, you may remember. And Esau comes back one day, he's been hunting, he is famished to the point of even death. And he needs food. This is his own brother. And Jacob says, well, hey, brother, come on and have a seat. I have some tasty soup right here, but you can't have any unless you sell to me your birthright. And so Esau, in a rock and a hard place, gives away his birthright for that soup, so he lives. But Jacob doesn't stop there. He knows that his brother, the eldest brother, is going to receive a blessing, a one, one, one only blessing to the oldest, um, that is going to go to Esau by their father Isaac before he dies. But Isaac can't see, so Jacob decides he wants that blessing. So he dresses up like Esau, even wears kind of animal kind of fur to seem like his brother who's a big hunter and Jacob wasn't. And he goes in and he pretends that he's his brother and Isaac gives Jacob the blessing when he intended it for Esau. But then the blessing has gone out of him and he can't give it to Esau after the fact. Esau is furious. His brother has beguiled him now twice and scripture says that he is going to kill him. But Rebekah, their mother, learns that Esau is so furious to the point of being driven to murder his brother, so she devises a plan. Perhaps she's a bit crafty, just like her son. Who knows? She decides, she goes to Isaac and says, Isaac, we have to send our son away to get a wife from our kinsman. You know Esau, he has all these Hittite wives. I just can't stand them. I'm sick of them. We need him to go and get a, a real good wife from our people. So Isaac says, son, you need to go away and go get a wife many miles away in a land called Padam Aram. Padam Aram. And there he's to go to Laban's house, his grandfather's house on his mother's side, and take a wife from one of Laban's daughters. But all of this, Rebekah engineers, so that hopefully when Esau and Jacob see each other many years later, Esau, will, his head will be a little cooler and won't want to kill his brother. Friends, there's no way that we can look at these events, I argue, from the chapter preceding our reading today and say, well, you know, Jacob didn't mean it, or he's really a good guy, let's overlook it. These are bad things he did. He is a scoundrel, and we're meant to, I would argue, see it that way. He is a flawed person. And when we even come into our reading, we see that we're going to uh, see there, there's even more kind of flaws that Jacob has. But God still breaks into his life. Friends, all of us are flawed. All of us are in need of God's grace. But friends, when we allow God's grace to come into our hearts, we can be transformed, imperfections in all, in amazing ways. Before we continue with Jacob's story, I want to share a more modern story that can help ground some of this in our uh, experience today. Uh, this man's name is Mike Anderson, and this story was featured on the Today Show in May of 2014. Uh, Mike made a poor decision when he was 23 years old. He lived in the inner city of St. Louis, and he robbed a Burger King at gunpoint. He was later arrested, uh, released on bail for the trial, and at the conclusion of the trial, while still on bail, uh, he was then sentenced to 13 years in prison and told by the judge that he's to go home and wait for the police to come to his home and pick him up and take him to jail. Well, what would be that at that point, prison. So Mike goes home, but the police never come. There was a clerical error, 
and they forgot about him. So he consults his lawyer, and his lawyer says, do not turn yourself in. He said, it's the state's responsibility to pick you up. They said, just wait, they'll eventually come and get you. Well, they never came for many, many years. Now, Mike is an African-American, 23-year-old male who's just held up a, a store, a Burger King, to rob it for money. What do you think our secular society would conclude happens next in Mike's narrative? They would think, right, he has no hope. This guy is just going to go from bad to worse. And even if the police never come and get him, he's just going to do more bad things. But that's not how the narrative goes. And I'm not going to conclude the story just yet. I want you to, to hold you in suspense a little bit. And think about this question. When God enters Mike's life, what do you think happens next? Well, turning back to our story with Jacob, God then gets a hold of Jacob and some amazing things happen. Jacob is now on the road. He's going to Padam Aran to the house of Bethuel to see his grandfather Laban. But he's on the journey. This is a, many, this is a long journey in the wilderness. Now, if you've ever been out in the wilderness by yourself, and it is dark, you're in the middle of nowhere, and you're in a forest, I, or out in the desert, which is probably more realistic to his situation, that can be a very anxiety-inducing situation. You don't know if there's bandits, if there's animals, what have you, it's cold. But he's out there alone, as Catherine Huey writes for us. We have to really get that emotion. He is, he is in a tough place. And he gets a nice fluffy rock pillow for his head, and he goes to sleep. Now, to me, there's a small miracle that he has a dream at all while he's sleeping on that rock pillow, but he does. He has a dream, a dream of dreams. And then, behold, we see in our text, he has a ladder that's connecting uh, the clouds that are heaven to earth, and these angels are going up and down, and God makes promises to him. This is an incredible sight. As I was reflecting on this text, I read several different scholars who uh, wrote different reflections on what this might be, how we interpret this vision. And a vision is a vision. I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's specific to the individual and how that individual interprets it with the Holy Spirit's guidance. But I really like how John Wesley uh, sees it. He writes that we could see two different meanings. One is that this ladder represents God's providence, or put differently, God at work in our world, and that, we, that uh, Jacob sees the angels going up and down, and it reminds him that God is moving all around him. God is working in ways that he can't even understand. Another way that Wesley interprets this vision is that the ladder could be a metaphor for Christ, and that the, the part of the ladder that is in heaven is Christ's divine nature, and the part that is connected to uh, the earth is Christ's human nature. And that Jesus Christ is that ladder that bridges the gap between heaven and earth and allows God to interact with us for Christ is our intermediary before the throne of God. I like both interpretations. They both have a different slant on this passage. And regardless of how exactly it's interpreted, I think that something really profound, going back to that, uh, the backstory of Jacob, is that this very flawed character in Scripture has the God of the universe personally speaking to him and not only showing him a vision, but then saying, I'm going to stand with you no matter what. I'm gonna, when you leave this place, I'm still going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back and fulfill the covenant that I made with your father Abraham because this is an echo of that same promise from Genesis 17, the old covenant, 
that your descendants are going to spread to the north and the south and the east and the west. God is going to work through an imperfect man to bless God's people and all of us thousands of years later. God uses imperfect people. Well, when Jacob has this happen, he wakes up from the dream and he is afraid, it says, very afraid. He has come face to face with the divine. He decides to use this stone and pour oil on it and make it a kind of a a pillar. Another word we could use is Ebenezer. It's kind of a a monument the Israelites would make um, to help them remember that God moved powerfully at this geographical place so other generations can remember it. But he, he makes this pillar and then he makes a vow in response to God. But notice as James Holbert writes that the conditional nature of that response. Now Jacob doesn't say, hey God, you're amazing, I'm going to serve you with my whole heart, like Jesus tells us uh, to do. No, it's, there, there are stipulations. Okay God, I will serve you and call you my God as long as you fulfill everything you just said, and I'm going to throw in a few extra things here too on my list. I need food and clothing, and I need to make sure that I come back to this place. And as long as all of that happens, I will follow you. Now, as Holbert says, this is an improvement for Jacob. So we have to applaud him, okay? This is very conditional, but at least it's better than he didn't know God at all before. It tells us in his scripture that he was surprised to learn that God was in this place. He didn't know that God was there. He was was converted, as John Wesley writes, as we see in this this, um, vow that is said in response to God's vow that he is now officially a follower of Yahweh, but he is very much a child in his faith and has a long way to go in understanding what it means to serve God. But at least he is officially on that road and he is aware of God's existence and desires to follow God now. As Holbert states for us, Jacob's story is our story in many respects. His flaws we struggle with in our own ways these thousands of years later. So I ask you, as Holbert asks, when have we put conditions on our allegiance, our loyalty to God? And maybe it's not something overt we do. Maybe it's more subtle at a subconscious level where, where we say, God, is, as long as I feel that I'm connected to you, I will be faithful. When do we put conditions on our faith? I want to share with you now, I've held you in suspense long enough, I'm sorry, so let me take you, I'm going to conclude the story of Mike. It's a really cool story. So now God enters Mike's life. And Mike says he feels that God has given him a new lease on life and he's going to make use of it because he doesn't know when the police are going to come and pick him up again. So, armed with his faith, he becomes a master carpenter. He starts his own construction business. He gets married, has three children, still married to his wife, and uh, gets engaged in the kids' school in a lot of respects. In particular, he's a, a football coach for the kids. And he's well-known and liked throughout his community. This, this couldn't have been a more radical shift for this man, right? Before robbing a Burger King. And then the clerical error is discovered. So 13 years later, after the sentencing, the police come one day and pick Mike up and say, Oh, we made a mistake. You're coming to jail. So he goes to jail And he stays there for a year, but then over the course of that year, an amazing thing happens. 
the people of his community, 35,000 people, sign an online petition stating, this is a changed man. This is not the same man who robbed that Burger King. Even the owner of the Burger King signs the petition and contacts the judge and says, you need to let that man go. That he, has, he has changed. He does not need the rehabilitation of prison, knowing that uh, that is questionable. So... Um, the judge hears this case and says, you're a changed man, you can go, and lets him go. And, he is, and then he was able to give his testimony on the news. Uh, what a powerful story. And after this all went, went, occurred, he then said on the Today Show that I thank God for how this all happened and for God giving me this opportunity to turn my life around. How powerful. Friends, God works through imperfect people. And when the grace of God gets a hold of someone, amazing things can happen. I wonder today uh, how we can find some similarities in Jacob's story. You know, we may not have double-crossed our brother or sister or something of that nature, but all of us have the same broken nature inside of us that Jacob did. And let me stress that we believe in United Methodist theology that we are created with a good nature. We are, we, God creates us inherently good. But we live in a broken world and that changes us. And all of us wrestle with sin different ways. And even if we don't commit the same sins that Jacob did, that same ability to commit those sins exists within us. All of us are imperfect in our own unique and tragic ways. But God still chooses to use us in God's saving narrative. And that is amazing, isn't it? Friends, I don't know what may be holding you back from making that next step of commitment to your faith or letting the grace of God come in more fully into your life. But I challenge you to, to surrender yourself more to God's grace, to let God come in more to your life and help you go through that next degree of change that you need to undergo. And this is a word to even the seasoned Christians among us. We as United Methodists believe in sanctification. That is a progressive process. It doesn't happen all at once, but it happens throughout our lifetime. And that we have an opportunity in our lives to keep letting the grace of God come more fully into our hearts and rejuvenate us from within and strengthen us. And that, I think, is what's so amazing about grace, is that Grace is given to us regardless of what we've done. Hebrews 9 writes that a new covenant is made between us and Christ because of the blood that Christ shed, a, a, a covenant ratified in Jesus' blood. And what this means is that we who are unrighteous are made righteous by Christ's righteous sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled the law, and now we are seen as righteous even though we're not because Jesus is righteous. He is God's only son. That is grace. It's not fair, in our, but in our favor, that God says, I don't care what you've done. If you will give your heart over to me, I will take a hold of your life and transform you. We see uh, also in scripture, as Romans 6 says, that we are no longer under the law that Jacob was under. We aren't responsible for fulfilling a certain series of mandates in order to be saved. Because that's impossible, right? But as Romans 6.14 says, we are under the law of grace. A law of grace that was bought for us by Jesus' sacrifice. And that means, friends, that this grace that 
If we open our hearts to that grace, we can be transformed from within. So let us then, friends, acknowledge that we are imperfect people. We are in need of God's grace. And let us take that next step of faith of letting that grace come into our hearts and transform us that we may be a blessing to God and a blessing to others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.